Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey everyone, and welcome to Come for Supper. I'm Alexandra Dudley, food writer, cook, and serial dinner party host. So I thought it'd be fun to sit down with people who share that love for food, chat about life, and learn a little bit more about how they like to serve supper. I speak to chefs, restaurateurs, artists, actors, authors, and pretty much anyone who likes to entertain. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you click subscribe. And if you enjoy it, rate it, review it, share it, and tell your friends, as it makes all the difference. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming to tonight's very special recording of Come for Supper. This evening, I sit down with a chef, a broadcaster, a food writer of over a dozen cookbooks. She is a businesswoman, she is a mother, and she's also a novelist. Adored by the nation for her extraordinary work within hospitality, charity, and good food, she's also a judge on the much-loved Great British Bake Off. Of course, she needs little introduction. She is the wonderful Prue Leith. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. So where have you come from this evening? Home. And Home. then staying with a friend and Paddington. I love Paddington. It's where I lived for many, many years. So, yeah. Nice. Okay, so not, not too far. So let's, let's start right back at the beginning. So you were, you were born in Cape Town in South Africa. I was. And stayed there until you were about 17, I think. And then I went to France. Went and to, to, to learn French, supposedly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had had a bash. My mother was a very famous actress in South Africa. And I grew up in in very privileged white South African middle-class house. And it never occurred to anybody that I should learn to cook. And um, we had a really wonderful Zulu cook, at whose apron strings I could have learned really good cooking, but never did. And I went to drama school because I thought, well, my mother's an actress and I love the theater and so I'll do that. I was really, really bad at it. (laughs) (laughs) And then I went to um, art school thinking, oh, well, that's okay. I'll be a stage stage designer, you know, and I'll still be in the theater, but I won't have to act. And I turned out to be really, really bad at that too. (laughs) And so I had one or two other disasters and I ended up in Paris because I wanted to learn French. Actually, what I really wanted to do was to get away from South Africa, and I wanted to be where I thought the action was, which was, I didn't really care, really, Rome, Paris, New York, London, anywhere other than Cape Town. And so I um, end up in in Paris, and you can't stay in Paris for two years without falling in love with food. And um, suddenly I thought, ah, I know what I want to be. It's a cook. 
So that's where it so began. That's, that's when it began. So yeah. Par- Paris was the catalyst, I guess, for yeah, then that life, absolutely. life and absolutely. food. I wonder what can you share, me perhaps an early, a very early memory of of eating, or perhaps from Paris, all those early South African years. Well, you know, I think the most um, the thing that made the most impression on me, and it sounds really stupid was that I was queuing in a student, uh, we, I was at the Sorbonne, and, and the, the student accommodation was in the Cité Universitaire, and they had wonderful big self-service canteens for the students. And you queued up, and there were these refrigerated counters, and you know how the French have for a first course, they have lots of little, you know, there'd just be a little saucer full of green beans with a few almonds on top, or some grated carrots, or, and I, um, didn't really understand this funny food, you know, little bits of this and that. And in in this counter was a saucer with four radishes. You know those English breakfast radishes, or French breakfast The long radishes. ones, yeah. Long pink Perfect ones. Perfect for dipping. Pink edges, pink ends. Um, with the leaves on, very fresh, and it was sitting on a saucer with a screw of um, sea salt, a little pat of butter, and a hunk mm. of bread. And I said to the guy next to me, Kiska you know, what the hell is that? <laughs> and he said, it's delicious, try it. And I said, I'm not going to pay whatever, how many francs it was for it. And anyway, I did. And he said, and he taught me how to eat it. He said, grab the radish, smear it through the butter, dip it in the salt, and eat it. And I sort of, it sort of was a revelation because delicious. it was so fresh and it was, the salt was so good and the butter was so good. And I thought that's all you need to know about food, really. It's just get good ingredients yeah, and don't fuck them about. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, quite right. Quite right. Delicious. So you, fin- you spent two years in France, and then we hit 1960, you're back in London, and you're studying at Le Cordon Bleu, which mm-hmm. I can imagine must have been quite intense. Was, I mean, was it, was it fun? It was fun. I did, and I, we learned, it was very classic French cooking. And it was, it was really hard work, and we had a sort of dragon um, teacher lady, who I'll never forget, called Mrs. Proctor, who used to complain that I didn't chop my parsley finely enough. It looked like a hedge, she said. <laughs> and I, actually, it's sort of, that's, that's what my cooking is. It's much more casual and not very neat and tidy. But um, it was a really good course. But I, had, I struggled because it was the advanced course, and they didn't take students in the, onto the advanced course unless they had done the beginners and the intermediate one, and which was the sort of first part of their diploma. You couldn't just jump to the advanced unless you had um, worked in a restaurant or you had done some other equivalent course. And so I, they said to me, you know, I said, I, I can only afford the advanced course. I can only afford three months, and I don't want to do three months beginners because that won't get me anywhere. I have to do the three months advanced. And uh, I was having a difficulty about this, but they must have had a few gaps in their um, enrollment because when I said I'd worked in a restaurant in Paris, they immediately said, oh, well, that's all right, you can come in. <laughs> I f- absolutely failed to tell them that all I had done was wash up. <laughs> <laughs> But I thought, well, being economical with the truth was a good idea. Always. But it did mean I had to struggle a bit because I didn't know what the hell a bechamel was, never mind. <laughs> but you anyway, survived. I survived. And then went on to set up your first business. And yeah. What was that? That was just catering. I mean, I, I just, like many, many young women, I was living in a, in a bedsit and I was walking around or tubing around London with a basket of 
ingredients Sandwiches. in one hand and tools in the other and cooking people's dinner parties. And actually, <clears throat> I think I learned another good thing then. Because one day, I was cooking for some posh lady in Holland Park. And in those days, kitchens, very old-fashioned kitchens, still had a sort of hatch between the dining room and the kitchen so that the servants could pass the food through or something. And I could hear through the hatch. I could hear what my hostess was saying. And, you know, you got most of your jobs by doing a good job, doing a good dinner, and then they would tell their friends, these posh ladies. And I heard somebody saying, oh, this is utterly delicious. You must tell me about, you know, who's the little, little girl? Me, a little girl. <laughs> you, you, who's, the, who's the little girl in the kitchen? Because I'd love to have her phone number. And she said, oh, no, no, no. She said, that's no. She's just there for the washing up. She said, I did all the cooking. <gasps> that's terrible. And I really very nearly flung the <laughs> hatch apart and said, no, you didn't. But I didn't. I sort of thought, that won't do me any good, and it'll embarrass her, and it'll all be awful. But I, then I had had little cards printed which said, Prue Leith, and you know, I said, Leith's good food, rather grandly. And um, so I stuck one into every one of the guests' pockets. As they were leaving. Hanging up in the, in the hall, you know. And, and I wrote on top of each one, your dinner was cooked by. <laughs> and one of those guys rang me up the next day and said, would I like to cook um, for his company? Because he had, um, you know, posh director's dining room thing. And I was really impressed. And I said, thank you so much. That's really kind of you. And he said, well, it wasn't so much the food, which was very good, but he said, I was really impressed with your marketing technique. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> definitely and, and something. Yeah, he became a good client, so it was good. It's, so. definitely a good. it's definitely something I think people should take note for their, yeah, yeah. For their business plan. And although you say you did it sort of grandly, you, d you did go on to start um, Lee's School of Food and Wine. I did. Which, yeah. and, and launched your own restaurant uh -huh. at 29 which is pretty, yes, well, you know, diving in deep. Uh, mm, well, I think, you know what? First of all, food was terrible in London in those days. <laughs> so, um, and I, I was really lucky because I was the first woman to have a sort of serious upmarket restaurant, other than Madame Pet Prunier, who ran her husband's restaurant, which was Prunier's, which was very, very famous. But um, uh, the, there hadn't been a, a, a woman owning a, a smart restaurant. There were some really good bistros run by women. But, um, so I got a lot of publicity, that, that helped. But also, I think, um, because food was dire, that the very fact that we didn't have a freezer and all the food came in fresh, um, actually we didn't have a freezer because I couldn't afford one, <laughs> but <laughs> that was beside the point. Um, we got a lot of publicity and a lot of people really impressed. And when I look at the menu, menus, they were awful. And honestly, the food—I'm sure they weren't. The awful. food wasn't that good, but it was better than a lot of other places. <laughs> so, so we did, uh, we did really well. And all the while, you're you're at this time you're you're writing recipe columns, writing writing cookbooks. Well, I got a I got a job on the Daily Mail, which was I mean again another piece of luck. Most journalists don't jump from never having written anything or very little. I think I had written I was writing the um, the recipes for Berry Brothers and Rudd. <laughs> Um, you know, in their leaflet, they <coughs> had a little newsletter. But I, ha I hadn't really written anything much. And, um, but what happened was that the editor of the Daily Mail 
decided they were they were launching the female you know they still do it female pull out and it was they needed a, a, a cookery writer and they wanted Lady Elizabeth Anson who is the Queen's cousin and really grand and she had started a company called Party Planners and so she she they still the company still goes and it does all these you know huge parties in Dubai with amazing fireworks and all the royal parties that are, are done by party planners but party planners um L lady liz was really hot stuff so the editor wanted her to do the cookery column and so they, he asked her and she said well that's a really good idea i'd love to do that there's just two problems one is i can't cook and the other is i can't write <laughs> so but she said i know a woman who can and I used to do a lot of the food for her party. And I was, I was a tiny little company, and she was a tiny little company. And I did the food, and she did the organization. And um, so I got to, so then the editor said to me, OK, will you ghost this column for Lady Liz? And I suppose this is where my sort of chutzpah or, or sort of brass neck comes from. Mm -hmm. Because instead of saying, oh, I'd love to ghost for Lady Liz and I, you know, anything to get, my, to get into a newspaper, I said, I'd love to do that, but can I do it one week and I'll give her all the posh recipes, the dinner party stuff, and then the next week, can I be Prulith and do all the mince and tatties and the beans on toast and the, the, good know, stuff. And the simple stuff? And they agreed. And so that's how I got my first column. So very lucky, and it worked. Well, bullshit. Well, sometimes it worked. I should tell you about... Well, the first time I got in trouble with a recipe is I wrote a recipe for um, for um, a ginger creme brulee, a sort of spiced peach brulee, with the peaches at the bottom, um, quite a lot of ginger in it, and then a creme brulee on top of it. And I wrote this letter, this recipe, and I wrote one ounce of ginger, and I didn't say one ounce of stem ginger. So most people thought one ounce of ginger was the pot, Ooh, wow. you know, the whole the spice. Pot. Actually, it's about two pots. In, in an average pot of new ginger, you get half an ounce. So um, that blew the head off <laughs> <laughs> quite a lot of people, including the editor's wife. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Prudy's responsible for introducing us to spice. <laughs> and then, anyway, but I, I survived that, although Lady Liz was pretty cross, because <laughs> it was in her name. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next thing that happened was a few weeks later, I was writing by hand, and I wrote, a, it was my column now, <clears throat> and I was writing marmalade recipe, because it was January and it was time to make the marmalade. So I wrote a, a, a recipe for um, Oxford marmalade, and those cooks of you among you will know that Oxford marmalade is the dark one, and it's dark because it has a couple of tablespoons of black treacle in it. And I wrote this recipe... And I wrote two tablespoons black treacle, but I was writing by hand, and I didn't cross the T. So I got two pounds of black oh treacle. Oh, my God. <laughs> and you would not believe how many people do what they're told. <laughs> Amazing. And so the, the telephones went absolutely white hot with everybody <laughs> ringing up saying, oh, God, I've got all this goo in the pan. Now what I do? <laughs> or more likely, you owe me a lot of money. <laughs> And so I was in deep trouble because, I, in fact, the editor made me answer the phone. I had to deal with all these women <laughs> who were really cross. And we gave them all 17 and tuppence. This was before decimalization. Wow. I'm that old. 
Anyway, and so we were giving away 17 and tuppence to everybody, which for their ingredients, and never mind for the burnt pans and everything. <laughs> and, um, and then one woman rang up and she said, look, I realize there's been a boo-boo here. How many oranges and how much sugar do I have to add to get the proportions right again, you see? And I thought, oh, that's a good idea. We'll just tell everybody to make lots, you know, a couple of years. Worth. <laughs> <laughs> and then I added it all up and they'd have had to make some 180 pounds of marmalade. <laughs> so, so we gave her her money. And then, um, then a couple of days later, when the thing was just beginning to die down and I thought the whole thing was over, and I found a bomb on my desk. And I knew it was a bomb because we, it was in the middle of the IRA bomb, um, bombing campaign, letter bombing campaign. And the IRA was sending bombs a lot to newspapers, but also to politicians and to or, you know, post offices and all sorts of places. And we were, we were taught and we, had, we were all, all trained what to do if you got a bomb. And basically, I recognized it because they said, if there's a squashy bit in the middle, that's the Semtex. And if there's um, wires, if you can feel wires, oh my God. that's very bad news indeed. <laughs> well, I could feel both squishy bit and the wires. So I did what I was told, my heart banging like anything, and I rang up the post room and, and along came a, a copper in a flak jacket and he took away my um, envelope. And then the entire Daily Mail, which was about a thousand people, because the printers were there, all the, you know, in the Carmelite house in those days was in Fleet Street and Carmelite Street. And it's a huge building and it was absolutely full of printers and journalists and managers and the bosses on top, everybody out into the street because of my bomb. Anyhow, <laughs> you know what happened after half an hour, we're all allowed back in again. And I'm told that I can go and get my um, envelope, and of course, what was in the envelope? Oh, it was a piece of marmalade toffee, <laughs> and embedded in it was a dental brace with two oh, <laughs> with two teeth attached. A <laughs> and I survived, and they didn't sack me. <laughs> a warning sign. You've done a lot of television. Um, I have done you've a lot done of a television. lot of television. Um, can you talk about the first, your first, first television appearance? Well, my very first television appearance was just ridiculous because it was, um, it was when a friend of mine was a presenter on BBC, and they were doing the tests. You won't believe because none of you are old enough to believe this ever happened. But they used to be when they were testing. It was all black and white television, and they would test. This is in the sixties and they were testing for colour television. So they needed some mug to come along and be... Um, they, they needed to have... What happened was they made programmes and they put them out in the afternoon... It must have been in the morning, because television only started in the afternoon. So the, these programmes, which were test programmes, went out in the morning. So you could watch them if you knew about them, but they weren't advertised and they were just all a secret. And so this friend of mine said, can you come and cook something because we need to do, see what a cookery program would be like on, on colour telly. And so I arrived at the BBC and I was told that we were, I, I needed to make a, a sort of pilafy rice thing um, it, in, in one saucepan, you know, or one frying pan. So I arrived with all the right stuff for that. And when I got there, there wasn't a real cooker. There was just th four rings painted on a table. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and a BBC, rather blunt BBC knife, really, and, and a saucepan thing. Anyway, um, so I was so nervous, and 
you know, I put the butter in the pan and I said, when it's sizzling, and of course absolutely nothing happened because <laughs> it's stone cold. And then you added the peas and the rice and the, this, that, and the next thing. And of course, because it was cold, everything, and I was stirring it, it all just became a sort of ball. <laughs> and so I was having to bluff that this, everything was happening right. So I said, when it's bubbling and the, you know, before, you know, the rice is soft. And I galloped through this recipe and did it in about two minutes flat because I was so nervous. And so then we had all this time left, and it was all live. So then she said, rather desperately, she said, well, Prue, we seem to have a bit of time left. So perhaps you'd like to show the viewers um, how you chop an onion. So I looked wildly around. I said, but we don't have an onion. <laughs> so she said, looking at what I've had on the table, she said, well, show us on a tomato. <laughs> so there am I demonstrating. On live television. I'm demonstrating in live television how to chop an onion with a overripe tomato with a blunt knife. <laughs> Not a great success. <laughs> but clearly, clearly was a was a great success. Um, you went on. I would give anything for a clip of that. You know, but of course, <laughs> it must be somewhere in the be well, down no, at the BBC no, no, archives the BBC or something. Throw everything away. You know? Oh I mean, no, the, do they? Uh, That's a shame. No, I mean, they are they're criminals. They've got their stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you had it here. Yeah. I mean, that that isn't really important. But to have lost Morecambe and Wise, and they have, is a crime. Mm. Anyway. Anyway, <laughs> Moving on to some of the brilliant TV that you have done. Great British Menu, which I think is my, f my favourite. I know that every, there's probably a lot of Bake Off fans in here, but I love the Great British Menu, and it's it always great, looks it? like you have so much fun. I know. Um, well, I, I mean, I just adored both those guys. You know, it was so such good. fun. To be, yeah. They're so funny, and Matthew Fort is just so avuncular, and he can pretend to be so pompous, which he's not really at all. Um, <laughs> but he is incredibly erudite and knowledgeable and he knows all about um the history of food but you get that you get you see you, you get that get when you're that. watching you it. do get that and 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 matthew though he looks grumpy all the time <laughs> has uh, he has taste buds like i don't know like what but he's just amazing he you know if if, Ma if, if matthew is struggling with where the lamb came from and i am struggling of is it lamb <laughs> <laughs> Matthew will tell you which side of the salt marsh. <laughs> you know. How old it was, everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and now, now you're in the Bake Off tent. Lots of fun. Lots of cake. Lots of cake. It must, it must, it must be a bit emotional saying goodbye to to guests. I think. I mean, it's your well, third year now, isn't it? Not really. You get really hard. Really. <laughs> emotional I when I watch it. I mean, at the at the time, it's quite, it's quite, okay. it's quite, yeah. You, Compartmentalizing I mean, you, it. You, what you, happens you, in the tent stays in the tent. You do, no, you do get, you do get um, fond of the bakers. But, you know, you keep saying to yourself, look, it's only television. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's not the end of the world. And, you know, just to have got there is great. And they, you know what, they're it's, all miserable at the moment you send them away. But 10 minutes later, they're just thinking, God, I got this far, and I can come back to the final, and I'm one of the people who who's done was it. On bake. Yeah, you know, a bake it's an amazing person. thing to do. So, um, no, I love it, and I must say, it's the easier. I don't say this too loudly, so they would drop my salary. But the fact is, it is the easiest job I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's eating cake. Eating cake is. I mean, it's not I mean, a bad thing to do, isn't it? Eating cake is not. You just have to eat it and judge but it. Not only that, I don't have to. I don't have to um, write a script. No. I don't have to learn any lines. Come up I with any jokes. I don't have to rehearse <laughs> anything. I don't have to make up the jokes like no. Sandy and Noel do. <laughs> All I have to do is walk on, eat cake, say what I think, walk on. That's off, it. 
Walk off, get paid. I mean, what's wrong? <laughs> I mean, what is it's a wrong dream with job? <laughs> Pretty nice. So let's talk a little bit about entertaining. You are a very busy woman. Do you do you have time to entertain? Um, well, I tell you what, I love entertaining, but I'm slightly anal about it, and I like to. You I know, like anal. We like anal here. You know, I like. <laughs> <laughs> Did you mean that? <laughs> I could help it. <laughs> uh, Carry on, sorry. Uh, sorry. <laughs> erase that from your memory. <laughs> um, uh, in the sense that I like to have them, I like to pick the flowers and make them look fantastic, mm -hmm. and I like to have clean towels in the loo, and I like everything, um, you know, ready. And I like to do all the cooking myself, and I like it to be wonderful. Flawless. But my husband thinks that I get into catering mode and get extremely okay. bossy and say, take the rubbish out and <laughs> do this. And do so that. you chef mode. And, and he doesn't like me much in that, in that <laughs> um, mood. And because I've got this bust foot, which I love to tell you about, but anyway, I have a, a broken Achilles tendon, you know, snapped. Um, and a f about six weeks ago, when I first got it and I was on in a wheelchair, um, I came home to John saying, um, I've invited 25 people for lunch. And so I said, you can't, you can't. I mean, I can't cook. I can't get out of this. You don't do a thing. It's going to be wonderful. Um, it's all arranged. And I thought, how am I going to, how are we going to manage this? And do you know, it was a lovely sunny day. And we had 25 people sitting outside in the, in the garden. And the... Um, local fishmonger, who's a rather good f fishmonger and makes, he's a French guy, and he makes really good ratatouille in a pot mm. and, and really good um, seafood stuff. And he made a, he cooked a salmon and did a, a sort of salad niçoise. Perfect. And um, John, oh, he rem John remembered that I had a lot of mango ice cream that had been in the freezer <laughs> for a very long time. <laughs> And as the guests arrived, I was worrying because, you know, nobody set the table and nobody done the flowers. Nobody, nobody did do the flowers. But I had been told I'm just going to sit still and I, I couldn't do anything else. So I just relaxed about it. And as the guests arrived, they were just, you going to lay the table. There's the plates. There's the knives and forks in here. Think table over there. You lay the table. You did the drinks. And then John got on with having a good time and talking to the guests. And all the guests did the work. Brilliant. So you were conducting the guests? I all wasn't, no. Oh, I they was, were just I was doing it themselves. sitting on my bum with a oh, glass in my hand. I mean, the best way to entertain me. Absolutely brilliant. We had the most <laughs> wonderful party. It was, it was just a lovely sunny day. The food was delicious. I regret to say that the, that the mango ice cream came in plastic boxes straight out of the freezer. <laughs> um, Glamour. Ro rock hard. I mean, none of the elegant bawling and, you know, nice little, you know, all in a cocktail glass. It just came out like that. And Let it thaw. It was a fantastic party. Brilliant. So I think I'll keep the boot on for a while. Keep it, keep it on. <laughs> and when, you, when you're not wearing the boot, when you are kind of queen of entertaining, what, what, what's, what are kind of dishes that you like to do if you were doing a... Do you do a starter and a main pudding? I do, I do. I tend to do that. And, um, but I always make a, a starter that, you know, like burrata or something. Something, that you can, yeah. You can do ahead of time. I nearly always do something like, um, you know, long, low, slow roast lamb or mm -hmm. a brisket or something that can sit around all day and it just gets better. And um, 
and, uh, and we eat a lot of ice cream because John loves ice cream. I think he's got an ice cream radar. He, <laughs> he was once um, in Mongolia and he found ice cream, which is unheard of. And it was made with mare's milk and he said it tasted <laughs> absolutely disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> an ice cream like radar is a useful thing. I think I have an ice cream radar. Mm. Have, you, have you taken him to Jalupo? You must have taken him to Jalupo. No, no, oh. No. oh, God. Mm. It doesn't close, I don't think, till midnight. Oh, I'm getting a Perhaps thumbs down from over there. Tonight's the night, Tonight's the night. So you've spoken briefly about um, your sort of recipe disasters. Have you had any kitchen disasters, sort of entertaining whilst entertaining, a moment when things have gone wrong? Uh, Has it always Of course been I have. I'm a caterer. I mean, <laughs> That's go, true. There's always uh, Things go that goes wrong, wrong for caterers all the time. Mm -hmm. And when I, I was writing my um, autobiography and, and somebody, a friend of mine, who, who'd worked with, for me for about 20 years, rang me up after and she said, look, I loved your book, but I do think it's a bit unkind. She said, the only things you talk about are the disasters. And she said, actually, we were a very successful <laughs> catering company. <laughs> <laughs> and you never said a word about the, you know, the triumphs. But, but the disasters are much more interesting, aren't they? Always much more interesting. And interesting, it's just an interesting thing about writing a, a biography or a memoir. People often say, struggle about what they should put in and what they can legitimately leave out. And my feeling is that if it's a memoir, you can, it's what you remember. Mm -hmm. So you can remember things how you like. Um, you know, uh, my brothers totally disagree with most of the things I wrote about our childhood. <laughs> but that's what I remember. They, they don't agree, but they don't agree with each other either. So it's, <laughs> it's fine. You know, everybody remembers things differently. And um, why am I talking about this? Must be a reason. Mess ups, mess ups in the kitchen. Mess ups in the kitchen. Memories. Okay, yes, disasters in the kitchen. Um, I suppose my worst catering disaster was years ago. I was, my company was doing the um, dinner for the Tate. When, when, when what is now Tate Britain was the Tate, the Tate annual dinner was a candlelit dinner and it had the, all the most famous um, modern artists, live artists, um, there, and all the big best sponsors. So it's the biggest thing for the Tate every year. And we were doing their candlelit dinner. And I arrived at about five o'clock or half past five um, to see how all our guys were getting on. And, and we had been given a, one of the galleries to set up as a kitchen. And the dinner was in another gallery. And as I walked through the gallery where the dining tables were all beautifully set up and looked beautiful, I was feeling, oh, that looks very good. But as I walked through the room, I began to smell that very familiar to any cook smell, which is of fermenting chicken stock. And as I walked closer and closer to the kitchen, the smell was stronger and stronger. And by the time I got in there, I knew that the soup was off, basically. And what it was, we, I, at the time, we were quite famous for a Stilton soup. I actually thought I invented Stilton soup. <laughs> it turned out that I didn't because one day I found in a, in a 1920s cookbook, a Derbyshire cookbook, I found the very recipe that I thought I'd invented anyway. <laughs> but it was very fashionable at the moment and all the other restaurants were nicking it and we were having, Stilton soup was everywhere. So I had put Stilton soup on their menu and it was to be hot. And, um, I, but I, I could, t I mean, you could just smell it, the stock was off. And so I said to the chef, it was a great big copper saucepan, bigger than this table. And 
it was sitting on a huge gas ring. And I said to the, stock, uh, to the chef, for God's sake, that, that soup is off. Oh, no, no, he said, not at all. He said, it's just that we've got a lot of Stilton in it. And Stilton, you know, Stilton's got quite, it's quite smelly. And I said, that isn't Stilton, that's, that's bad soup. And he said, no, no, I said, it's bubbling, for God's sake. It's, <laughs> it's fermenting. And he said, no, no, it's because I've just turned it on. It's bubbling. And I put my hand on the side of the pot, and it was stone cold. So it was, uh, So I said, right. And I made the guys carry the saucepan out and put it in my van, because I'd arrived in the Ooh. van. I put it in the van, and I said, I'll come back in a minute, and you know, I'll come back as soon as I can. Um, but I just wanted to take it away <laughs> in case they served it. And I, as I drove back to, and I was driving back thinking, do I go to my catering company, which is in the city's kitchen? I thought, no, because I won't be able to get anybody to help me because they'll all have gone home. And I thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll go to my school, which was at that time was at Notting Hill, in Notting Hill Gate. And, and I could, we didn't have mobile phones, so I couldn't ring up anybody on the way and get help. But I, I drove as fast as I could uh, to, um, to the school. And I couldn't have lifted that pot out by myself because it was huge. But as soon as I got there, I rang Caroline Waldegrave, who was the principal, and I said, can you get hold of any of the teachers and get them to come to the school and help me? And can you get and tell them to buy anything they can on the way that's white? You know, cream cheese, mussel soup, vichyssoise in a can. Um, <laughs> All of it. You know, stop at any deli and buy and bring anything they can. And I rang up my restaurant, and they, produ they produced a gallon of really good stock and a big pot of cream cheese that we used for the cheesecakes. And we made soup out of what this was, which was mostly mussel soup, vichyssoise soup, cream cheese, stock, um, lots of chives. Anyhow, and I scrubbed out that we, I remember we had, we had two of us had to tip the stinking soup out <laughs> into the Notting Hill Gate gutter <laughs> and then hose down the, um, the, the pot. And then we, we just put all these ingredients in, whisked the whole thing madly together. And then we had a lot of chives and parsley and stuff. And I drove it back and we, and we didn't have time to serve, serve it hot. It was all served cold. But it was, I have to tell you, absolutely delicious. <laughs> and the woman who ran the, the Tate um, events department, or whatever they called themselves, wrote to me the next day saying, you know, the party had been wonderful and thank you so much. And could she have the recipe for the soup? <laughs> and you know, that she said on the menu, Stilton soup. And nobody noticed that it was not Stilton soup <laughs> and that it had mussels in it. As, you know, it, it, today you, you'd probably you'd find somebody who's allergic to fish or something. Oh gosh, or, can you imagine? Be, anyway, we got away with it. Clearly, it's extraordinary. <laughs> well done. Anyway, so that was my big disaster. <laughs> I've definitely had my um, fair share of catering disasters. Now you do a huge amount for charity, lots of different ones, but I know something that's particularly well very close to you at the moment is um, hospitals and making the food making the food better and i know that you've been brought in to to advise the government on their review and you've also recently spent some time in in hospital your, yourself um i think lots of people have tried to try to kind of fix the situation and failed and it's it's a big undertaking and i wonder why 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 now i mean i mean you, you you've got a lot going on what why is it important why, why, why? to you well to be honest what happened was um 
the the Downing Street got hold of me and said, would I um, lead this idea of a review on hospital food? And I had been working for for quite I mean on and off for years and years trying to improve hospital food. And in the, in the last two years, I had been um, working with a company with a charity, uh, Sustain, you know, which is a an environmental charity, charity, trying to get um, more sustainable food and better tasting food and more healthy food into hospitals. And it was called the um, Better Hospital Food Campaign. And so I expect that's how the government had thought about me. And they were looking for somebody with with a name to 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 tag on to this idea. And I just was so fed up. I just found myself saying, "Look, what's the point? I have seen um, really good people bust a gut trying to help you guys, and achieving nothing or very little. I mean, they achieve a bit. Like, you know, for example, um, um, Lloyd Grossman had a, had a really good go for about five years, and he made a lot of different difference in a few hospitals. They usually say, "Look, we'll do a test thing, and then if it works, we'll roll it out." And they do the test, and it works, and they don't roll it out. Because by then, the minister's changed, the money's been taken away, everybody's lost interest. And I had become convinced that most of these launches are about ministers being photographed with some celeb, um, getting a few votes, and looking as if they're doing the right thing. And then nobody reports the fact that it's just disappeared. And then... Um, you know, James Martin had made a real difference in one hospital and done everything right. And then the, the hospital was taken over by some other trust or other, and it just disappeared. So I said all this. I said, there's no point in doing this because you guys are never serious. And I then they got Matt Hancock to ring me up. And Matt Hancock is the health secretary. And he was so convincing and clear that he was hanging his hat on reforming the NHS and that he gets it that food is medicine and that we can't reform the NHS without also reforming meds, um, food, the food in it. And he'd also rumbled the fact that the most frequent complaint about the NHS is about the food. And shall I tell you what the most frequent complaint about the food is? It's about toast. There is no toast, or the toast is soggy, or it's not properly toasted, or it's like pipe lagging. It's just awful. Or, but mostly, it's not there at all. And that is such an easy thing to fix. Mm. Hundreds of, ho of hospitals have managed it. They have toast on the ward, and they make toast, and they make it fresh, and they can do it. And it's such a comforting thing yeah. for somebody to have toast when they have no ap appetite. <laughs> The two things, if you gave people toast and tea when they wanted mm -hmm. it, we would have got a long way to, to get rid of the complaints. If you think, if you were going to be a caterer, if you, you were, you're you a catering student and you want to, you, you're looking for a job, how would you like to work in a, in a restaurant where you have to feed a thousand people at one, at the same time, 50% of those people don't want to eat anything anyway or can't eat or are nil by mouth. 65% um, 60 of them are over 65. Um, there are 50 different diets, you know, ethnic diets, um, uh, medical diets, cultural taboos, 50 different 
groups. It's not like feeding people in Notting Hill Gate or even prisoners. You know, they're a fairly homogenous group. Or school children from a certain area are a homogenous group. A hospital is an absolutely multi-customer um, base. So what we ended up agreeing is that what we need to do is to make um, diets suitable for... Because one of the big complaints is that I'm celiac and I kept keep getting offered stuff that's stuffed with gluten. Or I'm, I have, I'm, I'm people having had just had a heart attack being offered nothing but, you know, heart attack food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, the, because the administration is wrong mm-hmm. or the, or Communication the system, is system's too complicated and, and so on. And there are hospitals. There's a hospital in, in Holland which everybody is offered a, me, a, a choice of uh, a little menu, but it's a short menu, but it is designed for their... So that if you are... Um, celiac there's nothing on that menu that you can't eat so you're choosing from a menu that is designed for your condition i mean there'll still be lots of choice in it but but so anyway i'm quite excited about it because i think they for the first time i feel they really mean what they say i know that, that i mean of course god knows what will happen we've got might have a new government next week might not <laughs> oh, but, but if 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 boris and goes survive if boris and goes survive I think they 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 are hanging their hat on fixing the NHS, and so they and I also feel that a new government wouldn't want to say be the ones to say, yes, well we we don't believe all that we're taking the money away or we won't we don't care about food. I mean and that would be a difficult thing to justify, wouldn't it? So maybe we'll be able to do it whatever it be. Well, there's no better it's person worth to help. A try, for God's sake, it's, it's worth definitely a try. worth a try. And there's oh, definitely sorry about that. <laughs> no. That's my big lecture. <laughs> no, it's brilliant. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So they say that we all have a novel within us, but in your case, which some people might not know, you, you have many, eight, I think is it, eight novels now? 
eight, no- eight novels. Eight novels. Yeah. Mm, these I mean, aren't cookbooks. These are novels. These are, eight, these are yeah, eight novels. I mean, I, I sold my business because I realized that I couldn't go on running, which was, had become quite a big business mm-hmm. by the yeah. time I sold it. We were we had 500 staff, and that didn't count all the the casual staff who did the events and things. Um, and it, it said it was a big business, and I kept saying to myself, I'll write this novel one day. And then I realized while I was writing cookbooks and writing columns in newspapers and write and and running a company, I would never, never do it. So I just decided one fine day, actually when I was heading for 50, I thought, right, I'm going to sell the business. It took me about two or three years to do it. So I didn't sell until 93, and then I... S- published my first novel, I think, in 95 or something. And I wrote eight novels. And the last one, ha-ha, this is my moment. Oh, yes. <laughs> Just came out. This this the third of a trilogy, isn't it? Yeah, this, this, one. Is, the, this is the third of a trilogy. And um, they're all... Uh, the all Lost Son, for people who the lost are son. listening. It's the called lost the, son. the Lost Son. And um, all my novels are about... Um, they're all love stories. And I don't feel remotely embarrassed about writing love stories. Um, I hope they're not uh, trashy, sentimental nonsense, but they are. I just feel that women who write uh, women who write novels, and if they're about love or about family relations, are always called romantic fiction, and they're they're consigned to the basement, which is romantic fiction. Men write novels like Sebastian Fawkes, mm-hmm. one of the best novels ever written in in um, uh, Birdsong. And, you know, Ian McEwan writes like, wonderful novels. I mean, there are wonderful male novelists. Are they ever put in romantic fiction? No. They're called <laughs> a deep dive into the dysfunctional family. <laughs> or, uh, uh, you know, an amazing insight into the psychological problems of a whatever it is. And so I get very, very indignant about it. But anyway, um, they're romantic novels in that sense. And this, this trilogy starts in the war and it ends about now. So the first the first, it's three generations of the same family. And guess what? They're all restaurateurs or chefs. I was going to ask. And they're in television and all the rest of it. And Because I'm pretty lazy, so I <laughs> write about what I, <laughs> what I know. And anyway, well, write what you know is what they say you should do. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I'm really pleased with this. It, this took three rewrites to do it because my editor is an absolute demon. <laughs> and... I keep thinking I've written the perfect book, and then she says, actually, you should dig deeper. She says, there's too much business in it, or there's too much food in it. Because, of course, I get carried away by the food, or the, or, or, or I'm really interested in business, so I, 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 that tends to come into it. And she says, we need you know, more sex. More love. More, more love. love. <laughs> more Fifty Shades of Grey. So I put in some more sex and more love. <laughs> more sex. Which I actually, sus- I enormously do enjoy writing. So that's... <laughs> I suspect there are some people in this room feeling semi-mediocre right now about, the, about, about their achievements. But being, being a novelist no, 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 and listen, listen, doing... I have lived a very long time. You've got you lots have of time to do this. <laughs> I, I've been around doing this stuff for 60 years, so of course I've achieved a bit. You know? yeah, a lot. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary. I'm a very good delegator. <laughs> I, I, I do a lot because I get help. <laughs> good. I'm glad you get help. 
you know, just conduct everything from your from from with the boot. I do write the things myself. I promise. <laughs> I do not have a ghost. No ghost writing here. No ghost writing. But I do now because I can afford it, thanks to Bake Off. I now have somebody who tests recipes for me. That's very useful. And that's, no, that, no more. That means cooking kilos of are, sugar, and, and it means <laughs> probably means less <laughs> less mistakes. Um, but it also is really great because if you write a cook, if you write, you know this because you've written brilliant cookbook. Thank you. That's very kind of you. Land and sea. Yes. Sand and sea and land. I'm going to blush. Land, land, land and sea. Land sea and land's nice, land though. Sequel. It does. You have to test everything over and over again. Um, and it takes ages. And then, you know, there's the problem of typos. And, you you know, in, in most books, it doesn't matter if you make a spelling mistake. You make a mistake in the ingredients and you've wrecked somebody's mm. reputation as a cook and you've... You know, you, it's, it's a big the, deal. It's the yeah, it's a big deal. You've wasted the ingredients they've spent mm -hmm. on the cake and everything, and you know, so you've got to get it right. And um, and so now I have somebody to test my recipes for me. Well, I think I think I think that's very deserving. We're coming to the end now, and I always like to ask my guests what top three ingredients do you advise to always have in the kitchen. Well, I was thinking about this because I knew you were going to ask this one. And <laughs> I thought, I mean, it's just too boring to say lemon, onion and garlic, isn't it? Because, you know, that's... Well, that's nothing's what, too boring. No, it's boring. I mean, I, mean, I just think those are so basic that if you don't have that, you shouldn't be in the kitchen. <laughs> just leave. No, I think if, at the moment, I think this changes because it's all about fashion. Um, and this is a bit of a cliche to you because you guys are so fashionable. But I, at the moment, can't do without freeze-dried raspberries because they're just Definitely not delicious. boring. They're just delicious and they're easy to do and you chuck them on top of the mm -hmm. trifle and suddenly it looks really posh. And, and I like um, pomegranate seeds, mm -hmm. especially since I learned how to get them out of the pomegranate yeah, I was without... Say, I watched you do that earlier in a video. You're going to have to share, share your tips for how to no, but it's do true. that. If with, you know when you take... Um, uh, um, seeds out of a pomegranate if it's very fresh and ripe they spatter all over your front and they get little spots of and um and i'm pretty messy so but in fact the girl who who who, who taught tests no the girl who yeah the girl who taught me is the one who tests my oh. recipes and i suddenly saw her with her hands in a sink and a pomegranate underwater and she was fiddling around so what do you do she says i'm getting the seeds she, the thing is do it underwater the the seeds sink and the, all irritating bits of white pith rise yeah. to the top. And you can scoop them up. So anyway, so I'd have. So once once I learned that 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 what I do is if I get a nice big ripe pomegranate, then I do the whole pomegranate at once because it's a fag to do it. Put the seeds in the fridge, and then for the next couple of days you get pomegranate seeds pretty well on everything. <laughs> and it's great on the top of meatballs or on top of um, slow roast lamb or anything. So you get that little Salads. burst of sweetness. You chuck it into salads, put it on top of puddings. It's just, it's great. Pomegranate seeds. So that's two things. Free sauce rabbit, yeah. Oh, and another thing I think I'd like is I'm a, I'm a bit obsessed with Ottolenghi because I love all his mm. little pots of instant zatar and instant, yeah. you know. He's responsible for that he, in the yeah, supermarkets, really. Exactly. And Sumac. We didn't know what that was until he I know, came along. And the sort of rubs and everything. Mm -hmm. But I like the zatar particularly because it's so uh, sort of both spicy and herby and it does for everything. It's lovely. 
Nice, gosh, we, very you know, exotic. I, I, was, I tell you what, today is, it's got so far that today, I bet you John didn't even know what it was. Do you we know that hummus we had today at lunch? That sort of powdery Zatel stuff on top. Hummus. That was that. That's a, <laughs> so you, re, you really do use it. <laughs> anyway. And if you could have three ultimate dinner party guests to your dinner table. Oh, I, I, I love this question. I love this question. <laughs> um, well, first of all, I have Oscar Wilde. Brilliant guess. And first of all, because he lived such an extraordinary life. And secondly, because he was renowned for being an amazing gossip. And I do love a bit of... <laughs> <laughs> he liked his food as well. He I liked his food, food and his wine. loved wine yeah. and, and, and is a terrific goss. So that was lovely. And so I'd have him. And then I thought, well, I'd really like Boris Johnson. Because <laughs> I, mean, I don't regard not having breakfast with him because I never actually got to have any breakfast. Uh, we just talked. And then he went off. His 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 um, his uh, you know you know whatever they are, not equerries, whatever they are that hang around prime ministers, um, bodyguards, <laughs> advisors, personal assistants, whatever. PAs. Um, PAs. Uh, somebody anyway came along as soon as our conversation was over and loaded all the breakfast up on a tray and took it away. And see, and I said, hey, hey, you know, I've been up since half past five doing telly for him. <laughs> You know, I'd been off to do Good Morning Britain and all sorts of stuff. And I was really hungry. So I said, hey, where's my breakfast going? And she said, oh, that's going up to the Prime Minister's office. <laughs> no, I never no, got any but I, And I would like to have a proper, co I mean, more conversation with him because he, I mean, I don't know if you heard, I didn't hear it myself, but I'm, I'm going to listen to it. But the, you know, the guy is in, in a bit of trouble, you would agree. <laughs> I mean, he, he's got his back to the wall. And he's giving a speech, and it's all about Pericles. I mean, that's brilliant. <laughs> it's all about Pericles. And he's talking about, you know, I don't know, wonderful. So I, 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 would, I think he'd be really good fun. And then to contrast him, because he's a little bit right-wing for me, um, I would like to have Sandy Toxwig. Because Sandy is so funny, mm -hmm. and she's not only extremely left-wing, and 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 you know represents everything from feminism and gaydom and gaydom, just, <laughs> just great, brilliant. She is absolutely brilliant, and she's about as far away from Boris Johnson as you could be. And I like. If I have a dinner party, I really love it. If you can get, as long as people are good-natured about it, mm -hmm. I love it. If they are not from the same. You know, you, d you don't really want to have five oh. actors in a room because they'll just talk about acting. And, and if you have five journalists, they'll all bitch about their editors. <laughs> so what you want is a mixture. And I think that would be a great mixture. Be a great dinner party. Mm -hmm. And the last, very last question. Prue, you have undoubtedly inspired many people and I'm sure everybody in this room. And I wondered who, who's inspired you? I think my sort of hero... It's probably somebody that not many of you, unless you're cooks, would have ever heard of. It was called Alexis Soyer. Do you know who he is? Alexis Soyer was a Victorian, a chef. He was a chef at the Reform Club. And he invented all sorts of stuff, including the flame lamp and um, uh, the gas grill and the, the flame and the... Um, uh, uh, you, up till then, the, um, spits were turned by children or turnspits or um, crude and me mechanical means, but he he invented a way of the spit being turned by the hot air in the wow. in the chimney. He invented the galley. The um, he invented a 
a stove that is, until the 1950s, was still used by the army in the trenches to bring hot food to the thing. He went to, the, he went to Ireland in the famine, um, in the potato famine, to feed the um, populace, and he sold soup for a penny or something. And he must have saved thousands of lives. He did the, he, when he was not given the contract to do the catering for the great exhibition, he was so indignant that he opened his rival exhibition in, in the Gore <laughs> and, and had an enormous, um, he was enormously inventive and he invented all sorts of dishes that we all know, you know, cooks know about. Um, so I, what I liked about him, he was very flamboyant extremely inventive, terrifically philanthropic, and a great chef. Sounds I mean, it's wonderful. And, and, and not ashamed of being, you know, he was one of those people that posh ladies would be allowed to, you know, come and visit him in his kitchen. And he was a real show off, and he wore amazing <laughs> and really flamboyant clothes. So I like him. A lot. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for coming this evening. It's been an absolute pleasure to sit down and talk to you. Um, and thank you to everybody else for listening. Well, thank you. enjoyed this week's episode if you liked it rate it review it talk about it share it and invite your friends around for supper this has been a studio 71 production thanks for listening and i'll see you next week Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.